you have a Bible, do you want to open up in Revelation 4? Because we're doing a a series on the book of Revelation up until Christmas. Um, So this is week three. Um, So for those of you who are new, just just to warn you, um, the passage we're going to read out is a little bit weird, as is pretty much every passage we're going to be reading out over the next few months. Um, Revelation is... As you will know, if you've been a Christian for a while or read the book, just a little bit weird. You kind of read it and think, what the heck is going on in this book? I haven't got a clue what this means. Um, And so what often happens is as Christians, we often tend to shy away from it. We just think, I am not touching that with a barge pole. I'm going to stick with Romans and Matthew, and I'm not touching Revelation. I can leave that to the people who come up with those weird ideas about the EU being the beast, but I'm not touching it. And the problem if we do that is we are just, we're robbing ourselves of what is my favorite book of the New Testament? So just on a personal note, we're robbing, myself, robbing ourselves of that. But we're robbing ourselves of an absolute um, like delight of a book. It's Revelation, out of all of the books in the New Testament, is the one which most clearly trumpets the glory of Jesus, in, in my view. It's just absolutely phenomenal. It is hard work. I'm not going to lie, it is a bit difficult to understand at times, but it's well worth the effort. So it's well worth hanging in there trying to, understand what's going on. Um, But the reason it's difficult is actually it's written in a completely different style of language to what we're used to. It's written in a style called, long word coming, apocalyptic, which is basically a lot of imagery. And I thought a way of illustrating how apocalyptic works would be to, this is the first time I've ever used a painting in a sermon, but if we could have the slide up on the screen. Is it going to come up? Please work. There we go. Okay, does anyone recognize this painting? Yeah? So this is (laughs) Which one? Yeah, the one with the cross in the corner, uh, the church logo. Um, This is um, a a painting called The Scream by Edward Munch. Um, Those of you who know, I'm sure Michael Dryden will be able to explain a lot more about him than me. But what's going on in this painting is you look at this person, they're clearly screaming. But you look at the painting and you think, that's not a very realistic painting. It's not the kind of thing you look at and you say, okay, we can see clearly defined, very precise human features. We can see his eyebrows and everything. You're looking at this person thinking, that's a little bit weird. But somehow, the fact that it's done so vividly and so kind of almost exaggerating features and changing things and making them look like, I don't know, you've got the curves going on. And again, ask Michael Dryden about all of the technicalities of it. (laughs) He's shaking his head. I don't... um, It kind of conveys what a scream is, in my view, much more efficiently than if you were to just show a picture of someone screaming. I think there's something about the imagery in the painting that does does something much more vivid. And I think Revelation works the same way. It's trying to describe stuff which actually is really difficult to describe in normal language. You ever had that, where you're trying trying to convey something really, really profound to someone, and you just think, I just don't have the language to do that. And what Revelation is doing is trying to convey something really, really, really profound And saying, actually, we don't have the the language to actually do this. So we're going to do it in very image-heavy kind of stuff. And there's lots of pictures and metaphors and images that are going on, which we'll look at. But that's why it's difficult to understand. Because it's not just a straightforward portrait. It's more like this kind of thing. You read it and you get a sense something exceptional is going on. But I'm not quite too sure what all the details are about. And you'll be pleased to know we don't need to understand every single little detail to get a sense of how glorious Jesus is through Revelation. But we do need to do a little bit of legwork to figure it out. So um, what, what's happened so far, basically? So just to give you a bit of background, Revelation is written by John, who was one of the early church leaders. And he has been exiled 
uh, because of his faith as a Christian to a little island called Patmos. Um, and he's basically a, a, a slave there. He's working in the, I think he's probably working in the mines. He's basically working under Roman occupation. The Romans are the big empire of the day. They control the whole known world. And they said to John, you're not preaching about Jesus. You're coming to this little island and you're being a slave laborer for us. So that's what's going on when John has this incredible vision of heaven opens. So basically, John is facing pressure. The churches that he's writing to are facing pressure. The Roman Empire is a huge, massive, I mean, think like they dominate the world and they are very attractive and very scary at the same time. And what happens is that the risen Jesus appears to John, as Steph described over the last two weeks. And John is completely floored when he sees the he sees the glory of the risen Jesus. And Jesus, after John has been floored, goes up to him, puts his hand on his shoulder and says, don't fear. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but now I'm alive and I have the keys of death and of Hades. If you meet someone who says, I basically control death now. A Roman Empire doesn't look as impressive suddenly. As as far as the Romans were concerned, Caesar had the power of life or death. He could order anyone to be killed at any any point. But Jesus says, you know what? Caesar could kill you. I have the power over death itself. That puts things in perspective a little bit when you meet that kind of a person. And so that revelation isn't something written in a vacuum. It's not, a, it's not some kind of abstract textbook about here are the very specific blueprints of what's going to happen in the future. And um, it's going to basically be describing stuff like Russia having a coalition with some other country and things like that going on. That's not what's going on. It's being written to a group of churches that are facing pressure and need to see that Jesus has conquered and that actually history is heading somewhere. And that's what Revelation does, which means it's actually really relevant to us as well. Because just as a lot of actually the contributions that were coming today is that people face storms, people face pressure, whether that's here in the UK facing the storms and the pressure of Western secularism or busy jobs jobs or just stuff that doesn't seem to go away or whether that's Christians in Iraq seemingly, it seems, maybe facing death for the gospel. Revelation is needed. We need to preach from this book. We need to, in a sense, take it back as the church because it's been neglected for so long. Um, But it gives you a vision of Jesus and a vision of God, which just, I think, well, hopefully will blow your mind um, because it does blow mine. Um, So what happens? So Jesus appears to John. And then, so that's in chapter one, and then in chapters two and three, we're not actually going to preach on chapters two and three because we did a sermon series four or five years ago. Um, It's a bunch of letters to seven churches um, where the risen Jesus is basically saying, here are some great things about you. Here are some things you might want to work on. Here are some things I'm really not liking. Um, And every single one ends with Jesus saying, the one who conquers, I will allow them to sit with me on my throne. I will allow them to be clothed in white. I will allow them to wear a crown. I'll give them various things. Basically, guys, hang on in there. Is what all the, that kind of boil down all of the letters. Hang on in there. Keep following Jesus is what's going on. Again, remember, it's not abstract. It's real. It's written to real people in a real time facing real pressure, just like we are real people. Yeah, so that's what happens in chapters two and three. And then what happens if we can have the, the passage up? We're not going to read it all yet. Then chapter four starts, and this is where you get, so chapter one's kind of, it's kind of comprehensible, it's lots of weird language, but you say, you think, okay, he's having a vision of Jesus, and then you get letters, and we like letters, because most of the New Testament is letters, so we get used to reading letters, and then you get chapter four to chapter 22, and at that point, that's where we think, okay, I'm not touching that, because this is where the real kind of vision side of stuff happens, and what happens is, 
Um, John hears this voice. He says, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, that's the voice of Jesus, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So basically, that's the introduction to the vision. Jesus says, come up. I'm going to open heaven and I want to show you what's going to take place after this. And so the question is, how do we read Revelation? How are you supposed to open it up and read it and apply it to our lives? Now, a lot of people think of Revelation and they have the picture of some kind of, I don't know, some kind of fortune teller looking into the future and finding out little clues about what's, gonna, what's exactly going to happen all the way up to the end. And so what they do is they read Revelation trying to find a, an exact blueprint of every single step up until the return of Jesus. And what always tends to happen is people tend to read events of their own day into it. So if you'd been around in the 15th or 16th century, the Antichrist would most likely have been seen as the Pope by the, by the Reformed Church. However, if you, now, if you live around now, it would be someone completely different. And the problem with reading it like that is that John is writing to churches in the first century who are facing pressure. And it doesn't really help them much, that much to know that in the 15th century, someone's going to come along called the Pope. What does help them, though, is to know that God is in utter and absolute control over history. And that's what Revelation does. Revelation is a bit, it's not like looking into the future. It's a bit more like um, everyone here must have seen The Matrix. Yes. Okay, good. In The Matrix, there's a moment. Okay, just backstory. The Matrix, basically, the, the general idea is we're all being controlled by robots. Reality is not reality, and we're just dreaming. Um, and what happens is some people have managed to escape this so-called reality, and they come and see a guy called Neo, and they say, well, we've got two pills here. There's a blue pill and a red pill. If you take the blue pill, you just continue dreaming like, like the rest of everyone else, and you would never have known that we'd even met you. If you take the red pill you get taken out of this reality and you get to see the real reality. That's what Revelation does. Revelation says, you've got reality going on. What I'm going to do is I'm going to show you heaven's perspective on stuff. So in other words, the real point of view. What's really going on behind the scenes. It's like stripping back the curtain. It's like having x-ray vision in a sense. You're seeing here's what's really going on behind events of our day. So when Jesus says to John, I'm going to show you what must happen after this, we mustn't, ne- we mustn't necessarily read it as I'm going to show you what's going to happen in the long distance future. We must read it as, I'm going to show you what God's perspective is on basically the whole of the church age. In very, very broad terms. Here's what God's point of view is on um, the next however many thousand years. And what you'll see is there aren't necessarily many specifics. There's just a lot of encouragement about the fact that God has conquered and God has won. And that's what Revelation does. Everyone following so far? Yeah, so just to kind of demythologize, demysticize it for you, it's not a weird book about trying to crack a puzzle. It's a book written to people who are facing pressure, just like many of us are, with the encouragement that the Lamb has conquered, Jesus has won, and therefore there's hope in the future. But chapters four and five, which we're doing over the next two weeks, are basically they're the backbone of the book. Okay, so you've got your backbone. If you take your backbone out, you are in serious trouble. It's the most, I think, doctors confirm it, it's the most dangerous bone to break. If someone has a spinal injury, that's not good, generally, um, as far as I know. Because your your spine, in a sense, is so integral to what to who you are. It holds you together, in a sense. It's a bit like a, a car without with an, with an engine. Okay, you can show someone the most amazing sports car in the world and say this is going to go from from naught to 80 in about a second. It's incredible. And if someone opens the bonnet and they look at it and say there isn't an engine, you can say all you want about that car. That car's not going from naught to 80 in a second. If chapters four and five in Revelation aren't true, 
the rest of the book is absolute nonsense and falls apart. If the events described in these two chapters didn't happen and aren't true, there is no hope, there is no future, there's no redemption. We might as well just go back home and enjoy our lives. Okay, so a lot is riding on these two chapters. If you can understand these two chapters, the rest of the book will make a heck of a lot more sense. So we're looking at this week, chapter four, next week, chapter five. And if you want just a nice and easy way of remembering what these two chapters are about, chapter four, just remember the two words, God reigns. That's what I'm talking about today. That's kind of, I suppose, title of the sermon, God reigns. Next week, Steph's talking on chapter five. And chapter five, the title is Jesus wins. You take those two, you put them together. If that is true, which it is, then the rest of the book holds and we can celebrate the fact that there is actually hope, there is redemption, and everything's going to be okay eventually. Yeah, make sense? So what we're going to do now is we're going to read the whole chapter. And please try and, as, as I'm reading it, try and not get bogged down with the details. Try and think... Just have a sense of how this passage makes you feel when you read it. I think that's the idea. There should be an emotional response to reading this kind of writing. So think, don't worry about all of the eyes everywhere, but think, what does this make me feel like when I, when I hear it? So Revelation 4. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, like with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the throne, who is before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. It's quite a passage. It's the one that Julia read out. In worship days, you read the, the second half of it. It's quite, I mean, even if you don't necessarily understand what's going on, it's quite impressive. You get heaven opened and there's rumbling thunder, there's a sea of glass, there's 24 elders, they're all falling face down, there's animals with eyes everywhere. You get the sense something big is going on. And we don't need to understand all the details to figure that out. Something massive is going on in heaven. But what we're going to do is we're basically just going to go verse by verse and try and unpack exactly what is actually going on behind this because we can get a kind of an emotional response to it and say that sounds amazing but when you understand maybe what what some of the early christians would have understood when they read this it just helps us even understand it all the more and we're not going to go through in every single little detail but we're going to try and understand what are the different big symbols that are being used so this isn't a literal 
view of what heaven is like. This is very pictorial language, trying to convey something that can't be described. You can't describe what God's throne room is like in human terms. It's just too amazing to do that. So John's saying, I'm trying to use language that somehow connects with us in a way that we can understand the symbolism of what's going on. And so that's what we're going to do. So, first I'll start with a question, get you guys involved a bit. What is the first thing that John sees when he sees heaven open? After he goes through the door into heaven, what's the first thing he sees? A throne. Okay, now if you were John, and you had seen a vision with beasts and elders and thunder and lightning and a massive sea of glass and lots and lots of stuff going on, I think the, the last thing I'd have mentioned would be the throne. I'd be thinking, wait a minute, look at all those animals and look at that beast. Look at the, what are the eyes about? This is just immense. Oh, and look, there's a throne in the middle. But actually, John, first thing he sees is a chair. He says, I am going to point out that right at the center of this vision, there is someone who is seated on a throne, which clearly is God. Now, why is it that people will sit down? Okay, so God is seated on his throne. He doesn't go into detail in describing God, because again, you just really can't. It's like, okay, well, he had the appearance of Jasper and Emerald, and I'm not quite too sure how to describe him. But God is sitting on a throne in the middle of heaven. Now, people sit on chairs for various reasons. Some people will sit down because they're absolutely exhausted. They'll just get to the end of the day, and they're just absolutely shattered. And they say, I'm just going to sit down. I need to relax. Or you might have, I don't know, you might have seen one of Frank Mayfield's videos on Facebook and try and done the workout that he suggested. And you get to the end and you think, I'm, I'm just, I, that's it. I need to rest. And that is clearly not what God, why God is sitting down. Another reason you might sit down is you might just not be actually capable of getting up and walking. So you might think, actually, I'd, I'd love to get up and walk around, but I can't. Which, again, clearly is not what is happening here. What's happening here is a bit more like, anyone watch The Apprentice? I don't really watch I've seen enough of it to know basically what goes on in the show. But Lord Alan Sugar in that show is very rarely seen standing up and walking around. He's mostly seen sitting on a big leather chair in a boardroom. Now, the reason isn't that he's had a hard workout and is tired or that he can't walk. The reason is he doesn't need to stand up. Everything he does, he can just sit on the chair and say, you're fired. He doesn't have to get out, get up, take the person and frog march them out. He just has to say, you're fired, and that's enough. And that's why God is sitting down. God could get up. God can get up, but he doesn't need to. He's just sitting there, calm, cool, collected, completely sovereign. I hope this illustrated really well once by saying, imagine you had God's to-do list. Imagine you had to listen to every Christian's prayer in the world, to answer prayers, to save people and to, oh my goodness, loads of people are running right. What, what do I do? If you had God's to-do list, you would not be sitting down. You'd be running around frantically, panicking, trying to figure out what's going on. You don't see God doing that. You see God sitting down just calmly. He rules. He's completely supreme. He's in control. That's the main point of this chapter. If you get that, you've basically got the general idea of the chapter. God is seated on the throne and he reigns and he's completely sovereign. Bring it back into real terms. If, if, you, if what you see in reality is Caesar sitting on a throne and a huge Roman Empire that is very, it seems very capable of just snuffing the church out just like that if they wanted to. If that's what you see, then seeing true reality and seeing that actually Caesar's not sitting on the real throne. God is sitting on the real throne. That's going to be encouraging. If God isn't actually sitting on the throne, 
then the rest of Revelation is absolutely terrifying because it means that everything's out of God's control. But actually the whole point of Revelation is as terrifying as a lot of the events that happen in it is, God's in complete and utter control of them. God is seated on the throne. It's not, it's not abstract. It's not some kind of theological treatise. It's God speaking to real people saying, I'm in control. Don't worry. You ever had those moments where someone just says, don't worry, I'm in control, and you know it is. That kind of everyone's panicking, and the, the person who you know, if they say everything's, in, everything's all right, everything's in control, you're like, okay, I don't need to panic anymore. That's what God's doing here. He says, it's all under control. And we're going to see that as that unfolds in the chapter. All following so far? Good. Okay. Verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. Okay, I'm going to need just a few people to help me put some chairs out, which we will use in a bit. Can James or Joel, can you just help? We're not going to put 24 chairs out because... I don't want to spend the whole day here. But it's just to give you, again, it's very visual, just to give you a bit of a sense of what the the visual imagery that's going on. So we've got chairs around. Let's just have them maybe opening up, fanning up like that, and then another few here. So we get three on that side, three on this side. So we've got 24 thrones around God's throne. And on these thrones are 24 elders. Now, the 24 elders will... Let's just close this around. This is now God's throne. The 24 elders are sitting on the throne. Now, who are these, these people is the question that you are probably all asking at the moment. Who are these 24 elders? Well, if you were listening to a hint I gave earlier, you might, you might be able to answer this question. Who are the only two kinds of people in Revelation, do you think, who are clothed in white? Anyone want to suggest? Sorry? Priests and angels. There are actually no angels that are described as clothed in white. I did a word search just to double check. There's an angel that's clothed with the sun at one point. None of the angels are said to be clothed in white. Jesus is clothed in white and the saints. And in the letters to the churches, to one of the churches, Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to be clothed in white. And in another of the letters, he says, the one who conquers, I will give him the crown of life. These guys, whether they are kind of angelic representations of it or just imagery, represent God's people. And where are they sitting? Around the throne. Okay, now, when we get further on in the passage, just how ludicrous that idea is, is, will become clear. Because we've got, we will have pretty crazy animals yelling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and drawing on imagery in the bible which which reminds us that god is unapproachable but john says god's people are around his throne and again if you were describing the vision and you've got you've said there's a throne god's seated on the throne and you could see thunder and lightning and noises coming out of the throne the next thing i would describe would be the thunder and the lightning but john says you know what the thunder and the lightning can wait god's people are in his presence that is, that's significant enough for John to wait until he describes all of these amazing graphic things. He says, the most important thing I saw after the fact that God was seated on the throne is that his people, his redeemed people, were sitting around him, clothed in white, completely pure. It's the idea with white. It's the color of purity. That's why a, a, a bride walks down the aisle clothed in white. It's a representation of Christ and the church. And Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will allow him to be clothed in white. God's people, we, we are, 
Paul says we're seated in the heavenly places. And I think John gets a glimpse here of what it is for God's people to be sitting around his throne. That verse that Rich opened up with from Hebrews 10, we have confidence to enter the holy places. You didn't have confidence to enter the holy places in the Old Testament when there was the Day of Atonement and the priest, the high priest would come in backwards, put some smoke in the Holy of Holies so that you cover God's presence and then go in and sprinkle a load of blood to, tr- to atone for the sins of the people. He did not go in boldly. But actually, we get to come into God's presence boldly because of what Jesus has done. And John gets a glimpse of that. And it's just mind-blowing. Then verse 5 and 6. And from the throne, here we go, now we get the lightning and the thunder. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. Has anyone ever been right in the middle of a thunderstorm? You know where, like where there isn't actually a delay between the lightning and the thunder going off. Has anyone ever had that? It is simultaneously scary and very attractive. We were on holiday once. In, if you go in to, on holiday in the summer in the south of France, you will hit a storm at some point. I can't remember one year where we went camping in the south of France and there wasn't some massive storm that hit at some point. But there's, it's, it's impressive because you get to a point sometimes where you look up and you think, There isn't any darkness. It's like someone's just turned the light on. That's how regular the lightning is. That's how regular the thunder is. And you can't hear a thing. But there was one year where there was a storm just overhead. And we had to move the caravan in the middle of the night because there was a tree behind our caravan that had started falling over. So like, maybe we'll just move the the car. There's a, a weightiness to God's presence. You've got thunder and lightning and noises coming from the throne. It's just, there is something impressively weighty and big and scary about God's. I use the word correctly, scary. He's terrifying. But at the same time, you, you don't want to run away. It's like that thunderstorm experience where you think, this is terrifying, but it's captivating at the same time. Something that, what, what John's getting at is there is, some, there is a weighty presence here. That's what the word glory means in Hebrew in the Old Testament. It means weight. It's heaviness. It's like, take like that, those those scenes from Jurassic Park, for example, where you've got the, the T-Rex coming, and the first sign is you've got the water shaking. Remember those, those scenes? It's just got the water shakes, and immediately you think something heavy is around. That's what John sees. God's sitting on the throne, and just it's like, it's like there's electricity emanating from it. God is weighty, he's heavy, he's terrifying, but his people are sitting around him. The thunders and the lightning's not putting them off, they are probably sitting there thinking, this is absolutely terrifying, but I don't want to run away from this person because he is so captivatingly beautiful. But in the middle of that, John says, I saw a sea like glass. Now, if you're in the middle of a storm, what kind of a sea do you expect to see? Yeah, you expect raging storm. You expect kind of, I don't know, like, like the, I suppose the contrast is, the, have anyone ever been to the, uh, surfing in the Atlantic Ocean? Yeah? Anyone ever been knocked off of their surfboard surfing in the Atlantic Ocean? What does it feel like, Frank? Uh, you can't really do a paddle, really. You can't, you, yeah, you are completely, like, you're just, you can't do anything. You get hit, hit by this wave, you get dragged to the bottom, and it feels like you're there for about an hour when it's only about a few seconds. But the power of the waves is just phenomenal. Now, in the Bible, and in this kind of writing, the sea 
usually represents kind of the demonic turmoil of the nations where you've got you get often in these kind of writings beasts coming out of the sea that represent the various kind of evil forces behind ungodly nations you get that in the book of daniel you get that quite a bit in revelation and usually it's just the sea is just the turmoil of the nations if you live in that world the sea is a scary thing um you didn't have lifeguards you didn't have coast guards who could come in their speedboats if you got caught in the middle of a storm that was it you you were gone but in this chapter the sea is completely calm completely flat it's like a pond on a day where there is absolutely no no wind whatsoever and so even though for the whole book you when you get heaven's perspective of what's going on on earth everything's going crazy there's like there, things are running right beasts are coming out of the sea from in heaven that the sea which it seems a lot of commentators agree represents the turmoil of the nations is flat god sits there thunder lightning emanating from his throne and the nations can't do anything demonic powers just submit and you see that with jesus so you see that obviously with it when he calms the storm he just says be quiet that's the kind of authority that you're talking about when you mess with god he just speaks to people who are possessed by demons casts out the demon and says be quiet he commands the demons to be silent there's absolute and utter authority over every evil power and again when you are living in a world where which seems to be run by the biggest nastiest empire you've ever come across the fact that from god's perspective all i have to do is just click my fingers and the whole thing's silent that is going to be encouraging to know that actually whatever caesar is sitting on the throne and however much he threatens to wipe out christians or to put pressure on you god's sitting in heaven saying you know what from my from my perspective i can just click my fingers and everything is calm i think those prophetic words that were coming through all those stories were coming through actually relate to this in a particular way that if you are you feel you're just going through storms well actually to know that god's the one who can give absolute perfect calm to a storm which i mean you'd look at the turmoil of the nations and you think who is able to calm that you look at what's going on around the world and you think who on earth is able to calm that well we we worship a god who sits in heaven and from heaven's perspective there's just a flat sea that's what's going on there god is utterly utterly in control absolute calm absolute authority he's not running around like crazy trying to sort stuff out he's just sitting there reigning ruling surrounded by his people okay verse 6 and 6 to 8 and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind the first living creature like a lion the second living creature like an ox the third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight and the four living creatures each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within and day and night they never cease to say holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was and is and is to come And I just get four people to come up. Um we're going to do a, a bit of an experiment later. Um so could we have just first people up who want to be these beasts basically. You literally just have to stand there. <laughs> so as soon as I said you want to be these beasts, Alex just jumped up immediately. Okay, we've got four people. Um you can be the lion if you want. You got the mane going on. That's cool. Um you can be the ox. Um eagle. You can be the eagle. I like that. Yeah, you just look a bit bird-like. And so these these <laughs> and uh, you will therefore be the man um so they're not they're not going to do much they're just going to stand there looking as much like their animal as they can but again you kind of read it and you go what on earth <laughs> i didn't mean he literally looks like it i, I okay whatever um i'll get in trouble for it um what on earth are these creatures like we've got creatures with eyes all around don't worry about the eyes eyes like 
uh, there's lots of eyes in Revelation. They are generally to do with like all-seeing vision. What we're not too interested in the eyes. But what do these creatures represent? Now, what's happening is there's a bit of a merging of two passages in the Bible that's going on. These four creatures are seen for the first time in the Bible in Ezekiel 1, where the prophet Ezekiel sees a vision of God's glory. And one of the things he sees are these four different animals. And there's lots of wheels and weird stuff going on. But he sees these four different animals and they kind of represent part of God's glory. But there's another passage as well, which is Isaiah 6, which we'll read out in a bit, where you get a kind of, it's like they, the, the animals in both passages have been merged together. But that's kind of a little bit beside the point in terms of understanding what they are. They most likely are angelic representations of creation, basically. So you've got different, you've got human beings, you've got flying things, you've got strong lions, and you've got like plant-eating things. You just, it seems like you've got basically a representation of the whole of creation. So you've got God's redeemed creation sitting on the throne, and you've got God's creation in total. And what they're doing is they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And I'll get you guys to do that later, but don't worry yet. So just get ready for that. Um, do you realize that heaven has been singing this particular song, or at least part of this song, for at least 800 years by this point? So if we can have the passage from Isaiah 6 up. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah, who is a prophet, meets with God. And he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. Heaven has has at this point in history, so when Revelation's written, been singing this song for at least 800 years, and I think probably been singing this song ever since angels were created. Because they see something so powerful and so massive when they look at God that they can't stop but singing. I mean, just imagine if Sammy was to come up after this and strike a chord and say, okay, we're going to sing, and we start singing holy, 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 and then 10 minutes in, some of us start thinking, this has been going on a little bit now. Are we going to sing another song? And Sammy keeps going. And then one of the elders comes up and above all of the noise that Sammy's making says, we're going to officially finish there. Uh, there's tea and coffee outside, but you can stay here if you, if you want. And then when the guys come in to close the hall down, Sammy is still singing holy, holy, holy. And when we come back next Sunday, he's still there and he's not even in the band next Sunday. He's still singing holy, holy, holy. And we come back in 800 years time and somehow he is still singing holy, holy, holy. You just think that's just ludicrous. But John's saying, no, of course it's not ludicrous. When you actually see what God is like, singing the same thing over and over again is not ludicrous at all. It's the normal thing. So it's like a husband and wife. Um, if, if the husband or the wife say to, say to each other, I love you, it's very unlikely that the other person is going to say, well, you said that yesterday. <laughs> I know that. Don't tell me again. That's not going to happen because actually there's something where they see the other person. They think, I want to tell them I love them again. And I want to keep on doing that. And you get that to the power a billion here where angels are in front of God and they sing holy, which means completely separate, other. They're basically saying God is other. He's separate. He's different. And these, I mean, if you, these angels in Isaiah 6, 
When one of them speaks, it says, the foundations of the threshold, the, the temple, shook at the voice of him who called. Imagine a being that when it shouts, can make the foundations of the temple shake. And they're flying around covering their eyes. Like, I, I, I can't look. I'm not going to look at God because he is so holy. I'm sure if I looked, my eyes would just burn out. And that is what heaven has been singing for hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of years because they're met with the presence of someone who is so separate, so different, so other that they say, oh, we can't sing anything else. We've got to sing holy, holy, holy. But actually, there, there is another song that heaven sings, which we'll look at next week, which as far as I know is the first time in the Bible it says heaven sings a new song. So just look forward to that. But they have been singing that chorus for hundreds and hundreds of years. But remember, throughout all this time, where are the elders seated? Seated. Sat. <laughs> that was terrible. Where, where are the elders? They're sat around God's throne. And as far as we can see, they're not covering their eyes. Which you like. So these massive angels in Isaiah are covering their eyes. The elders are sat around the throne. And we'll see they worship later. But they're, they're, John's not describing them as covering their eyes. They're sat in God's presence and they're welcome. It's absolutely mind-blowing that a creature who can make a building shake by shouting has to cover its eyes and say, I can't look. In fact, Isaiah says, I'm going to die. I've seen him. That's the kind of reaction he has to seeing God. And that in Revelation, you get elders sitting on a throne with crowns on their head in a, on thrones, reigning with God. It's kind of mind boggling how that even works. Who was and is and is to come. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You can't actually say that about anyone or anything but God, if you think about it. So Dan Hater, who is, I am, who was, well, for a few years, for 26 years, but there was a point where I wasn't. And so you could argue, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to keep on living forever and into the future, okay, but there was a point where I didn't exist. People used to say the universe has existed forever and will always exist. Until we found out in the last 100 years or so that, no, there was a beginning to the universe. So you can't say the universe who was and is and is to come. You have to say the universe who was at a particular point in history and at some point in the future will actually be wrapped up and changed. You can't say who was and is and is to come definitively of anyone apart from God. But there was no point in history where God didn't exist and there will be no point in the future where he doesn't exist. And in fact, that line, who is to come, is even more profound than just him existing in the future. Because what it's saying is the living creatures are saying, who was and is, and is to come in a very real sense. He's going to come back and he's going to judge all of the nations and he's going to put all wrongs right. All injustice will be sorted. Everything that has ever been done wrong will be put right when the judge comes to judge the earth. In the Old Testament, judgment was something to be joyful about. I think we need to adjust our thinking on judgment a bit. It's terrifying, because if you're on the wrong side of God, it's absolutely terrifying. But the Psalms sing of the, the rivers clapping their hands, however that happens, because God comes to judge the nations with, it, with equity. God's coming to put all wrongs right one day. And Jesus is saying, John, I know you're suffering. I know you're facing pressure. He's the one who is to come. He's going to come back, and he's going to put all wrongs right. And now... The last, last bit, verses 9 to 11. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns down before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and gods, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. When the elders hear these animals singing, their response to it is to look at the crown on their head and think, I don't deserve this. And they fall down in front of the throne and chuck the crown in front and say, I don't deserve this. You are worthy of it. You're worthy to wear a crown. I don't deserve to have this crown on my head. You've given it to me by grace. And they fall down and they say, worthy are you to receive glory and power and honor. They say, that's how grace works. You suddenly come face to face with God and you think, oh, I thought I deserved it. I don't. I clearly do not deserve this because I'm now standing in the presence of someone who is worthy of all glory and all honor. And I've got a crown on my head and I feel very, you know, when you when you when you turn up slightly overdressed somewhere and you think, no, no, I, I should not be wearing my tuxedo at this point. It's not appropriate for my social standing. You, you, that's the kind of reaction the elders are getting. They're saying, I don't I shouldn't have this on my head. And they continue to throwing their crowns down before his feet. And I'm sure that Jesus is then putting it back on their head and saying, no, you can keep the crown on their head. And they say, no, I must throw it down before you. I don't deserve this. And what I'd like to do now is a bit of an exercise, which try not to like make light of it too much. is just to hopefully to, for you guys to see the just the, the massiveness of what's going on and the kind of continuousness. I need six volunteers who want to be elders who are very happy to do a little bit of falling over and getting back up on chairs. I just, have we got six people who are happy to just sit on these and from time to time we'll have to get off or I'll have to pick on people. Yep, okay, actual elders. (laughs) And another one. Cool. Okay, so in a sense this will probably seem like a bit of a fun exercise but think here's what's here's what's going on we need one two more there we go get all four of them up (laughs) so what's going on is whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne okay when do the living creatures give glory and honor to and to him who's seated on the throne when do they do that Day and night. Okay, so they are continually saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Whenever they do that, the elders fall down, cast their crowns, and say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. If we have that up, because you are not going to be able to remember it that easily. What I'd like to just for you to see, and imagine this multiplied by four with these, these guys here, and with thunder and lightning and a sea of glass and these guys with eyes everywhere flying around and what we're going to do is as soon as these guys start these guys are going to continually say holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was and is and is to come every time these guys say that you guys need to fall down off your throne cast your crowns and say that and we're just going to leave that to go for a minute or so just so i I know it, it Sounds a little bit amusing, but I want you to see the sense of ridiculousness. And imagine this has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. And John's trying to convey that. So are we happy to do that? Yeah? yeah? Okay, so you guys can go ahead. So holy, holy. And at this point, the elders all fall down and they start yelling that. Should we get these guys to join join the beasts? Holy Lord God Almighty. 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 Holy
was. And you guys as well. And you guys can join the elders and sing the worthy chorus. Is, is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will. Okay, thank you. Thank you, everyone. That, hopefully, was a bit of fun but hopefully gives, gives you a sense of... Imagine that... I, I imagine they were shouting at the top of their voice. I mean, these are... If Isaiah 6 is anything to go by, these guys are shaking the foundations of the heavenly temple as they're singing this. But that is going on constantly. Or at least that's the way John describes it. Again, remember, it's, it's all visual imagery trying to convey something far more profound. Heaven cannot stop praising. Creation looks at God, represented by these guys at the back, and said, ho- says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And God's special creation says, worthy are you to receive glory and honor for you created all things and by your will they were created. Imagine just wanting something to happen and therefore it happens. I used to think as a kid, I, I had a weird way of doing things. I would, I would often come up with plans to build stuff that like I genuinely thought I could. It's like you come up with a plan to build a rocket at age seven, and I had this plan of how I'd fly it to the moon and everything. I genuinely believed I could make it. I clearly couldn't. God just has to think of something and say, I want that, I want that to be created. Oh, yeah, um, let it be. And it happens. And that's the kind of thing that the elders are seeing constantly. They're saying, you created all things, and the reason you created it is you wanted to. If you want it to happen, there's nothing stopping you. And they're continually, continually crying that out. Thanks, guys. You can go and sit down now. Okay, so hopefully we've got a sense of the organized chaos that's going on in heaven. Um, And again, remember, so John's getting insight. This is, along with chapter 5, this is an insight of what's going on in the throne room of heaven in the present, throughout the church age, basically. But during this whole time, you've got... Thunder and lightning and sea of glass and animals and elders and crowns and holy, holy, holy and worthy. All this is going on. Where's God? Seated on the throne. Completely unfazed, completely in control, completely consistent. He is in absolute, utter control. And just to bring it into reality, regardless of what you are going through, whether that is facing the pressure of your work, or whether that is facing death for the sake of the gospel... God is seated on his throne. He's completely and utterly in control. He has redeemed the people to himself, and they are secure. They're round his throne. And so regardless of what you're going through, however big or small you might qualify it, God is in control. That's kind of half the point of the book of Revelation. God's in control. Everything you see going on all the way through it is orchestrated and under God's control because he's seated on the throne, and he is worthy to be praised. And we get to draw near. We, we get to be, we're kind of represented by these elders or angelic beings or whatever as sitting around God's throne. Like Rich said earlier, we come to draw near to the throne of God in confidence. And that's what we're going to do in a few minutes. We're going to, and try actually, as we're, as we're worshipping, try and have that, that picture, the imagery of Revelation 4 in your mind. And just think, worthy, worthy is the, is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy are you to receive power and honour and wisdom because you created all things. And to, to just remember, we are, we are those who are around his throne. 
We're the, in, in a sense, in the vision, we are the closest things, closest created things to God. So let's, let's draw near. Father, we thank you. We thank you. We get to come into your presence. And uh, I thank you so much that you are worthy. You are so worthy. Now, Father, I, I pray that you would just hit us in the face with your glory again, Lord God, that we'd just be overwhelmed. That for those of us who are a bit blasé, um, I pray we'd be hit in the face with something of your presence and your glory, but we would be hit at the same time with a sense of gratitude that we get to be among the redeemed. We love you, Jesus. We love you father and we we pray would you help us to to worship you in a way that that really pleases you father we love you and we want to honor you in jesus name amen